Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, y'all. Welcome back, my good friends, and thank you one more time for your time today. There's a theory that one action creates an equal and opposite reaction. The true measure of the action may not even be realized until one is able to look at the reaction to the event. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, biblical word is taken seriously in some cultures. Of course, sometimes the word of God, when interpreted by man can get us in a position where we see a head for an eye and everything else for a tooth. So the theory of every action having an equal but opposite reaction should have a small caveat added to it, saying that it all depends on who's in control of the reaction. As in some cases, the reaction is far worse than the initial action. Come on in, make yourself to home, and listen as I tell you a tale of how one kick delivered from a mule went through a community like falling dominoes and ended up killing nine people before it's all over with. Now, right in the break with the Appalachian Mountains of South Carolina sits a county named Edgefield. The story of Edgefield is more than 250 years long, reaching back to before the first European settlers arrived when only Native Americans roamed the beautiful forest. At that time, the area which later became Edgefield County was a vast wilderness of virgin forests, occasional prairies, and great cane breaks, and sparkling rivers and creeks. It was bisected by the fall line, with sandy soils on the southeast side of this line growing primarily pine trees and rich clay soils on the northwest side 
growing primarily oak and hickory. Wildlife was abundant with deer, turkey, but also elk, buffalo, panther, and bear. The initial settlement of present-day Edgefield County occurred in the quarter century between 1750 and 1775. Some settlers came up from the South Carolina Low Country, but most poured down the Great Wagon Road from the colonies to the north. By 1940, the country was on the verge of World War II, and farming was a very important resource of the day. Aside from earning their living by farming in the first place, farmers had to use their own farms to produce their own food. As the war loomed and many normally abundant resources were beginning to be used in preparation for the great conflict. I explained that to clarify how important what happened next was to the farmers of the day. Our story begins in September of 1940 when Davis Timmerman's mule wandered over to Wallace Logue's field and the mule kicked and killed Mr. Logue's calf. Now, we mountain folks know how mean and stubborn old mules are, so that came as no surprise to me. Mr. Logue, now mad as an old wet hen, stomped over to Mr. Timmerman's house and demanded that he pay him $20 for the calf. Now, that's about $372 in today's money. Mr. Timmerman agreed that his mule had indeed wandered over and killed Mr. Logue's calf, and he agreed to pay the $20 in damages. Now, being that the county sit on the brake line between mountain and flatlands, there are bound to be Appalachians and what we mean of what we mountain folks call flatlanders. Now, there's no intend, intended offense there to anybody with that comment, but there are distinct differences in culture. Now, I'm not sure if that distinct difference in cultures are responsible for what happens next, so I'll leave that for you to decide. But Mr. Logue, after stewing on the death of his calf by Mr. Timmerman's mule for a day or two, went to Mr. Timmerman's store, which you can see pictured on our Facebook group if you go there. That's a Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend podcast group. It seemed that Mr. Logue had decided that $20 just wasn't going to cover the damages caused by Mr. Timmerman's mule. He had reassessed the damage at $40 and demanded another $20 be paid him in restitution instead of the 20 that Mr. Timmerman had already paid to settle the problem. And Mr. Timmerman refused to pay any more, of course. So Mr. Logue, who had already been fuming over the death of his calf even after being paid for it, became more infuriated. So he walked over to a rack of axe handles, grabbed one, and commenced to wail away on Mr. Timmerman. Now, being a store owner back in those days and seeing the likes of Bonnie and Clyde just a few years earlier who robbed little stores like that almost exclusively, Mr. Timmerman didn't go to work unprepared for such a thing. He pulled a gun he kept hidden in a drawer, fired it twice, and dropped Mr. Logue in his tracks. Mr. Timmerman then staggered to his feet, locked the body in the store, and despite being pretty seriously injured himself, drove to the town of Edgefield to report the shooting to then-Sheriff L.H. Harling. Sheriff Harling, Coroner John Hollingsworth, and Solicitor Jeff Griffith drove back to the store. Now, a solicitor is a, a equivalent to what one might call an attorney general or a commonwealth attorney or something along those lines. They were referred to as solicitors then. 
But they spent hours collecting evidence, and based on their interpretation of that evidence, it did appear that, that what Mr. Timmerman said was true. Nonetheless, despite that, apparently Mr. Loke held a bit of prominence in the edge field. So Mr. Timmerman faced a coroner's inquest. After the inquest, the jury found Mr. Timmerman indeed acted in self-defense and that he was set on his way. The fact that Mr. Logue had been killed by Mr. Timmerman, even in self-defense, lit a fire under his widow Sue and his brother George. They just plain didn't agree with the jury's verdict and had expected Mr. Timmerman to pay for what he had done in South Carolina's electric chair. So, they decided that if the electric chair wasn't going to get the job done, then they'd just have to find somebody who would get the job done, and they knew exactly who to ask. Joe Frank Logue, George's nephew, was an officer with the Spartanburg Police Department. They talked with Joe Frank, who at this point had an exemplary record of performance on his job with the police department. He was one of the most trusted men that the police chief had. But I guess you throw all that out the window when kinfolk remind you that blood is thicker than water, or thicker than being a good lawman in this case. George and Sue scraped together $500 to pay Joe Frank to find somebody to kill Mr. Timmerman. Joe Frank hired a down-and-out alcoholic who pretty much stayed in trouble. Clarence Bagwell practically had a revolving door on a Spartanburg jail cell reserved just for him with his name on the door. Well, that may be a stretch a little bit, but he was much like Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffith show, if you know what I mean. He would run the vicious cycle of go get drunk, fight, go to jail until he sobered up, rinse and repeat. A year after Wallace Logue was shot and killed by Mr. Timberman, Joe Frank picked up Clarence Bagwell in his squad car and drove him over to Timmerman's store. Joe Frank waited in the car while Mr. Bagwell went in and asked for a pack of cigarettes. Stick around, this one's not going to get any better for the folks involved. I'll be right back here listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, Mr. Timmerman, not suspecting a thing at this point, turned to get the cigarettes for his customer. That's when Mr. Bagwell fired five shots at point-blank range with a 38 caliber revolver, killing him instantly. Mr. Timmerman dropped and lay in the same spot where the police had found Wallace Logue's body a year earlier. Joe Frank hauled Mr. Bagwell back to Spartanburg, threw him out of the car with his $500, and they both went about their business as nothing had ever happened. Unfortunately for everybody now up to their necks in this mess, Mr. Bagwell took his blood money to a pub where he proceeded to tie one on. Tie one on for the ages, that was. Back in 1940, $500 could get you quite a bit of drink. In fact, over $9,300 worth in today's money. Needless to say that his party ended up lasting a couple of weeks at least. During one of his daily binges, Mr. Bagwell just couldn't help but brag to a young woman that he had made $500 for being a hitman and killing somebody. 
Instead of being greatly impressed by the antics of the great criminal Mr. Bagwell, as he thought she would be, the woman went straight to the police with that information. They took it seriously and dragged him in to answer a few questions. When Mr. Bagwell was questioned, he learned to his surprise that a witness had seen him at Timmerman's store on the day of the murder. Now feeling trapped and likely having the granddaddy of all hangovers, Mr. Bagwell confessed and snitched on Joe Frank Logue as the mastermind of it all. Now it turned out, Joe Frank didn't quite think that blood was thicker than his butt sitting in the electric chair, so he admitted hiring Mr. Bagwell and told it to detectives that his aunt and uncle Sue and George Logue had hired him. So on Sunday, November 16, 1941, the newly elected Sheriff Wad Allen and Deputy W.L. Doc Clark picked up the warrants from Magistrate A.L. Kemp and headed for Sue Logue's home to pick them up. Apparently, Joe Frank wasn't the only one under the spell of the Logues because somebody had warned Joe Logue that, or George Logue that the law was on the way. George and a sharecropper Fred Dorn ambushed the two officers as they came to the house. Sheriff Allen, after being shot, still made it to the house where he was clobbered with a wooden chair by Sue before being hit with another hail of gunfire. He died after being shot in the head. Deputy Clark, who had taken over behind the or taken cover behind the cruiser, returned fire but was shot in the stomach and arm. Deputy Clark was able to wound both men before staggering to the car and making his way to Highway 378 where he was picked up by a passing motorist. Governor R.M. Jeffries later ordered state patrolmen and deputies from Saluda County to arrest the Logues and Mr. Dorn. With dozens of officers surrounding the house and officials wanting to avert further bloodshed, they appealed to then-local circuit court judge Strom Thurman, a Logue family friend who was rumored to be in romantic relationship with Sue to try to re- reason with the Logues. Now, you may recognize the name Strom Thurman. He would later go on to be elected to the U.S. Senate and served there a long time, very long time. But Judge Thurman arrived, marched across the yard, and right into the house without saying so much as a word. The Logues finally followed his advice and surrendered a short time later. Two days later, Deputy Clark died. Logue's friend, sharecrapper Fred Dorn, died of his wounds the day he was hit, and they found him dead in the house. Four months later, George, Sue, and Clarence Bagwell were all tried for Mr. Timmerman's murder. The three-day trial was held in Lexington County with Solicitor Griffith serving as prosecutor. The jury took only two hours to convict them all of first-degree murder, and their sentences were death by electrocution. So I guess they're going to find out what the electric chair truly can do, huh? On January 15, 1943, Sue Logue was electrocuted first. Judge Strom Thurman accompanied her on the trip with, to the death house, and, well, uh, the driver said that they had relations in the back seat, and according to, that according to the driver. Sue had been a teacher in the school system when Judge Thurman was a superintendent and they'd been caught in the act of making a little more than kissy face, if you know what I mean. So their affair had been going on for many years. 
Sue Lug was the first and only woman to die in the electric chair in South Carolina. So less than an hour after Sue was executed, George and Clarence took their place in the electric chair as well. Joe Frank Logue was tried in a separate trial. He too was found guilty of first-degree murder and, well, he received the death penalty as well. His execution date was set for January 23, 1944. On the evening before his scheduled execution, his head was all shaved in preparation for the electric current that would soon end his life. As he ate his last meal, he had a visitor show up. It was Governor Olin D. Johnston. Governor Johnston showed up to tell Joe Frank that due to the immense support of statewide officers, police officers that is, everywhere, prosecutors and judges, he had commuted Joe Frank Logue's sentence to life in prison. So Joe Frank took up training bloodhounds while in prison and in fact was so good at it that he added statewide law enforcement to apprehending over a hundred fugitives using his canines. It was with the support of numerous law enforcement agencies that in 1960, along with 37 of the state's 40 sheriffs, supported Joe Frank's bid for parole, and he was set free. By the time the whole thing was over, nine people lay dead, and it all started with a single kick from a mule that wasn't even delivered to a person. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, please. Go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend and give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to do so, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. You can support the podcast also by clicking the show notes, or you can go to the Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we get into everything or everything Appalachian or whatever else you like to talk about that is I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend I'll see you then